<laughs> it seems like every year they find a way to creep in on the thankfulness of Thanksgiving with the uh, I gotta have it of Christmas. I think stores opened up at 10 a, uh, not 10 a.m., 10 p.m. this year, some of them for, for Black Friday. I figure that uh, it'll really be overboard when we start seeing Santa Claus costumes at Halloween just to get us start thinking about the money we will want to spend for Christmas. Um, yeah, let's bow our heads. Lord, we come to you just at this time to thank you for your truth that you offer to us that is there for the taking, for the, uh, the enjoyment and to be treasured and to be held on to. Thank you, Lord God, that you have been faithful to us in so many ways and one of those ways is in providing us with truth to live by. Lord, I just pray that you would bless this time in your word I pray, Lord God, that your message of truth would, would shine through and would, would come through in a way that is understandable and applicable to our lives. Pray, Lord God, where our lives don't seem to fit your truth, that we would realize just how out of touch our lives are with your truth, not the other way around. Lord, I um, again thank you for this time, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You hear a lot of interesting comments over Facebook. Um, my wife was reading one of her cousin's comments, um, and it was that uh, I think the statement was truth takes on different color based on the light that's shined on it. Truth takes on different color based on the light that's shined on it, which is a, a very, actually, a pretty postmodern. Um, uh, idea that truth is relative. And um, so you hear a lot of interesting comments like that. Uh, Jay, if we can get the font shrunk down on that just a bit. Thanks. Um, Perfect. Sadly, though, these ideas become more and more a part of the church, even. The pastor's wife of a very common movement today that um, is a nationally known pastor and writer um, who's a part of the emergent church. And his wife commented something similar to uh, this Facebook comment, and that was that, I used to see the world in black and white. And now I see it full of color. You know, what is the statement there? It's that, that if, if you see the world in terms of right and wrong or truth and non-truth, then, you know, you're like an old black and white TV. Outdated, you know, has been sort of thing. And what you need is, is to open your eyes up and then life would be full of color. You hear the intimidation in that statement, of course, it's not surprising that her husband sees the crucifixion of Christ as an outdated idea and considered it cosmic child abuse and would never teach that in his church. 
So, so the I, I, as I study Colossians, I am just so excited as I study it and see how relevant it is today. And I hope that you will see that in today's message and get a little bit excited about as we're coming through Colossians and, and that you'll maybe read ahead in it and, and come to know this book and, and come to see how important these truths are that we'll be looking at and how important true truth, or you could say truth with a capital T, is today in our world. And so we're going to be digging straight into Colossians this morning. Um, It's very interesting in these situations when truth is thrown out, when when you hear maybe the, maybe the statement is said this way, we don't need doctrine. Doctrine is, is old and decrepit. All we need is Christ. Or, or you don't, you know, absolute truth is a thing of the past. Well, it's interesting because in those situations, who becomes the authority? That person that's telling you to throw out truth. Because they want to become the authority in your life in those situations. But I, I don't want to digress here. Uh, we want to dig into Colossians. We're looking at Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. And I, I debated with myself um, how to, to move into Colossians. Sometimes when pastors move into Colossians, they'll spend uh, a week just kind of talking about those first couple verses in order to give a lot of background on Colossians and a lot of information about the people involved and things like that. Spend a whole message on that and then kind of, you're supposed to kind of remember back to that or, or and there's, and this is, that's a very valid way to dive into a book. Uh, but I want to get to the doctrine of Christ in time for Christmas. And so, and I, and I also like the idea of as we come across cultural issues or references to issues being dealt with in the Colossian church as we move through Colossians, then that is a time when we can look into the historical significance and the cultural issues of that day in reference to as, they're, as they come up in the letter that Paul writes to the Colossian church. So we're moving, we're diving straight into the first eight verses of Colossians and we're going to reference the cultural and historical issues as we run across them. So anyways, that being said, it opens up with Paul, an apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So this is who the letter is coming from. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, our Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 
just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So we're looking first at this idea and, and, and we're looking at our sure foundation. And this is what the first eight verses of Colossians teaches us about. So the first idea that we're diving into here is the servants of a sure foundation. The servants that are mentioned here and how it is that they are servants of a sure foundation to the Colossian church. Um, Paul is describing himself as an apostle. This is one who has been sent out. Now, I know that, that some churches will have, you know, apostle so-and-so, you know, as listed on their uh, sign, maybe, as of their pastors. I don't know if that's a cultural thing in this area, but I've, I've lived in towns where some churches are like, our pastor is Apostle Joe, or something like that. And, and that would not be this same significance as Paul is calling himself an apostle. An apostle would have been someone that was specifically commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, physically present and commissioning that person to be sent out with an authoritative message, not just for the church of that day, but an authoritative message of his truth that we still draw off of today. Part of what um, caused the Roman Catholic Church to diverge away from truth is this idea that they believed that there was apostolic succession. That the apostle could then pass on his authority to a successor. And that that authority continued to flow from a person. And that became the council of the church uh, the, the apostle that had the most authority they thought was Peter and that, that Peter was passing on his authority in Rome. And so this apostleship idea is significant and it's, a, it's where much church doctrine has diver, diverged from each other. But scripturally, an apostle was in a, a special office that was held by people that Christ himself gave that authority to and that he continued to minister to the world through these people. So Paul calling himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God is a significant thing. Very special person. I mean, we're talking about very few people in, in history that would have been able to call himself. Paul had not actually ever visited the church in Colossae. But he was hearing about their situation there through Epaphras. And we're going to get to who he is. But Paul mentions Timothy first before getting to that. Timothy was a young man who, had, who was a believer before Paul's first missionary journey. And he, he grew up in the, in the area of Lystra. And Paul, became, Paul had stayed with Timothy's mother and grandmother during his missionary journey, became very impressed with Timothy and discipled Timothy himself. Later, other passages of scripture, he calls him his true son in the faith. And, and so, and Timothy actually became a travel partner with Paul. Timothy, at one point, had been sent to different churches. Um, Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus with Paul for a time. 
But Timothy is with Paul at this time right now. And we're going to see um, uh, he's referenced there and where this setting is. So, um, and he also mentions this man Epaphras. Now, I've, I've combined here verses 7 to verses 1 through 2 here because we're talking again about the servants of this sure foundation that's described in these verses 1 through 8. He describes Epaphras as our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So let me uh, um, give you some perspective here. And we're going to zoom in this map in a second here. But if you see, just give you some perspective of where these lands are. Everybody recognizes the boot of Italy, right? With uh, Sicily, it's kicking here. Uh, So we got uh, Jim Catalano's homeland here, right? Um, Never trust anyone in a battle of wits, especially when death is on the line (laughs) with a Sicilian. But um, you have Greece here. And over here is Asia Minor, which uh, would be considered Turkey. I don't know why this map decided to kind of put it on its side a little bit here, but just try to help you out here. Israel is over here with Jerusalem. For those of you with eagle eyes, they can read that. Okay, so we're zooming in here on, so notice we're, we're zooming in on Asia Minor here. And here you have the town of Colossae, and here's the town of Ephesus. And the reason why this is important, um, for me at least, um, is that Paul on his first missionary journey is when he meets Timothy. And, and begins to disciple Timothy. And Timothy becomes a travel partner with Paul. On his third missionary journey, Paul sets up in Ephesus doing ministry there for around two years. Doing ministry in the church of Ephesus, uh, using Ephesus as kind of a, uh, a place where people from this area are learning about the gospel, coming to Christ. If Acts 19 describes a number of people coming to Christ during Paul's ministry from the city of Ephesus and then going back to their hometowns and taking that message of Christ to their hometowns. The reason why that's significant is because during that third missionary journey is, is when it's believed that Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul. And he was from Colossae here, Equal opportunity. He was from, from Colossae here. Epaphras took the gospel back to Colossae, planted the church of, in Colossae among the Colossian believers, and was pastoring the church there in Colossae. Okay, so as a part of this third missionary journey, Paul is taking a collection for the Judean saints who were in financial hard times. Timothy goes with Paul back to Jerusalem. Timothy with Paul, they are there at the Temple Mount and the Jewish rulers find the opportunity then to arrest Paul while he's in Jerusalem. Timothy is with him. Paul, for the purpose of being able to share the gospel and spread it further, he... um, appeals using his Roman citizenship to Rome. So Paul is then taken, this is what this, this uh, squiggly line here, Paul is taken to Rome with Timothy. Okay? Epaphras comes to visit Paul. 
with news about what's going on in the church in Colossae, the church that Paul had never visited. And Colossae was probably the most insignificant city that Paul had ever written a letter to. But what was going on in the church of Colossae was so significant that Paul, with Epaphras with him and Timothy with him in Rome, sends a letter to the church in Colossae with this, this important teaching that they need to be shared. So that's why it describes Epaphras. says, Epaphras, our beloved servant. I'm sorry. Uh, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So Epaphras had brought the gospel to the church in Colossae. He calls him as our beloved servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he's made known to us your love in the spirit. At the end of the book of Colossians or the letter of, to the church in Colossae. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you. Remember, he came from Colossae, brought the gospel back to them. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and faithful and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. So that is the significance of these three servants of this sure foundation. Their heart is weaved in with these issues and the truth that needs to ring out in the church among the Colossians. So he writes to these people in Colossae and he calls them the, to the saints, the faithful brothers in the brothers in Christ at Colossae. This doctrine that is being dealt with was of utmost importance to them. It had to do with this sure foundation that had been laid there and this sure foundation was being eroded by the teaching that was starting to be accepted by this church in Colossae. It's probably significant that he calls them the, the saints and faithful brothers. Using this specific term because the, part, the concern that they had for them was that they, were, that they were no longer being faithful or that they were being challenged not to be faithful to the truth. And the teaching that was, was, was slowly being accepted by the church in Colossae was the teaching of Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Um, you probably a term akin to this that's more common today would be agnostic agnostic the the what those two words have in common is the root word of gnostic which comes from the greek word for knowledge or special knowledge and agnostic with the prefix of a on the front of it would be thinking that you cannot really know anything there's no knowledge that you can have that's it, that's real, you can't really know truth or not have truth. That would be what an agnostic believe. A Gnostic, without that prefix on the front of it, believes that you need special knowledge. They would believe that salvation comes through receiving special knowledge from God. And that special knowledge is what 
allows someone to really have a relationship with God. And so this belief is slowly creeping in. And if, if you think that the scripture is not relevant, what's interesting is that there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Part of this special knowledge that the Gnostics believed that you needed dealt with the question of this. If God is good, why does evil exist? How many have heard that question recently? Yeah? See, there's nothing new under the sun. Scripture dealt with these issues. And these truths, uh, the truth of Scripture is penetrating to the same issues throughout history. And our enemy, our Lord's enemy, has been targeting the truth ever since he was released to be the prince of the power of the air. So the, the question that would come up, just as it comes up today, is if God is good, why does evil exist? And so the Gnostics had arrived at this idea, this special knowledge that they had arrived at in order to answer this question was, well, God is spirit. And God is good. So everything that is good must be spiritual. So, of course then, everything that is physical must be where evil comes from. So God is spirit and God is good. So spiritual things are good and physical things are evil. Okay, so, and this is the kind of ideas that we arrive at when we are thinking within our finite box up here. Because we can only think as far as our, our skull will let our thoughts go. But God, is, who is infinite, is the one that we need to rely on to give us the answers to these questions. Because he allows, in his understanding and in, in, in this world that is flowed out of his infinite being, good and evil coexist in a way that we can't really understand. But he lets us know it's there and it's a part of the design and it's okay, but it's not always going to be that way. Okay, but when we try to arrive at these answers out of this box that our brain is stuck in, we arrive at these conclusions like, okay, well, God is spirit, so that must mean everything that's spiritual is good and everything that's physical is bad. So you, you can maybe start to see how as this philosophy starts to creep into the Colossian church, they start, um, well, there, there was kind of two directions that this could have gone and we'll get into that more. But the, the direction that this kind of gone was going with the Jewish representation of the church was that, okay, everything that's physical should be shunned. So um, enjoying food, enjoying anything of a physical nature, uh, sexual relationship between husband and wife, marriage in general, that should just be shunned because I'm taking on something evil if I am enjoying anything physical in this world and, and I need to be about more spiritual things. And then the more of the Greek influence in the church 
would have been leaned toward the outgrowth of this philosophy of it doesn't matter what you get yourself involved with physically in this world. Any sort of gluttony, any sort of sexual indulgence doesn't matter because the physical world doesn't matter to as long as I'm elevating the spiritual side of life. So the more I disconnect the two, the more spiritual I am. And so this philosophy could take on two different faces, but it still flew out of, it flowed out of this, this poor answer to the question of if, if God is good, why does evil exist? And so because they were relying on this poor philosophy of answering that question, rather than trusting in God's truth and trusting in God to provide the answer to that question, it took on these two different faces in their behavior and in, what the, in the temptations that would have flown out of that. So this is a significant issue that the church in Colossae is dealing with and Paul is um, taking on this concern in his letter to them. And, and like I said, we will dive into different aspects of this as it comes up in his letter to the Colossians. Um, Jay, can we scoot that divider over just a little bit? It's all right if the, we're just dealing with technicalities up here. Uh, no, the other way. Sorry. <laughs> Ravi Zacharias was lecturing at Ohio State University. And if you're a, fr- a fan of Ravi Zacharias, you've probably heard him share this story before. And he was, he was driving with one of his hosts um, prior to the lecture to this. And they drove by the Wexner the Wexner Center for Performing Arts. And the person who was driving was boasting about this, this building. He said, this is the first postmodern building. You see, it has columns that have no purpose. The columns just go up and they don't support anything. It has stairways that, that, that travel up and then they don't go anywhere. And so uh, Ravi Zacharias was kind of discussing this building with the, um, the person that was driving him. And he was saying, so, so the architect's argument was that if life has no purpose, then why should this building and its design have any purpose to it, right? And the man was saying, yes, that's, that's, that's pretty much the, the philosophy of the architect. So uh, Ravi asked him one question. He said, that's interesting. I wonder if he had the same philosophy when it came to designing the foundation of the building. He said there was kind of a silence. And this is the quote that I read of Ravi. And he said, you see, you can fool with the infrastructure as much as you would like. But you dare not fool with the foundation because your bluff will be called in a hurry. When, uh, when the church that I was um, at prior to here was building a new building, we found that we were ground zero of the worst soil in the whole town. And that's basically what the geotechnical study told us. You're ground zero for the worst soil. So what had to be built was a floating foundation. That meant that over a hundred columns had to be dug and poured that went some of them 20, 30 feet down into the earth to get to bedrock. Foundation went from costing $250,000 to $500,000 because all of the foundation had to float on these columns 
to get down to bedrock because the soil was so bad. The foundation was so important that we had to eat a $250,000 increase just to make sure that the foundation was going to be sound for the building. The very foundation of the church in Colossae was being eroded by this teaching that was starting to creep in. And Paul believed that he had to act on it. Guys, this is happening in the church today. When we start answering the questions that we have out of our heads instead of answering it with God's infinite knowledge and truth. Um, are you aware that, that one of the doctrines that is common in the American church today is one of open theism? What open theism and the question that it starts with is that of if bad things happen and if God is in control, how is it that a good God allows bad things to happen? So the answer that comes out of our cranium is this. God must not know what is going to happen. So God is in control of everything. Or the other issue that this flows out of is how could a wonderful God ever make decisions for you because obviously God must want us to be able to have total freedom in what we decide right so God must be able to know what you're going to do but he just doesn't he just kind of shields himself from that because he would never encroach on your freedom is this idea so God knows everything except for what involves the decision of humans which is pretty much everything. So the idea is God's just kind of moving through history with us. He doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know uh, what's going to happen next. Uh, of course, it's ignoring all the statements in the book of Isaiah talking about how you are the God that knows the end from the beginning. You know... Uh, so these are the ideas that we come up with out of here rather than coming from God's infinite truth and infinite knowledge. So Paul begins his letter helping the Colossian believers to re-examine the foundation of their lives really. So the second idea here is that we want to see the signs of a sure foundation. Paul starts listing off the signs that he sees that they had a sure foundation there. Paul is grateful for what he hears about of the church in Colossae from Epaphras. And what has been told to him are the signs that many of them are standing firm. Paul, Paul notice, chooses first to emphasize the positive that he's heard about uh, from the church in Colossae. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You know, don't you wish you could sit on in on that prayer time, Paul and Timothy and Epaphras? That would have been amazing. But he's listing off here the things that they become thankful for as they pray for the church there in Colossae. First of all, is a faith that is resting in Christ Jesus. This is the first sign of a sure foundation that Paul speaks of 
when he talks about the church in Colossae. This is a faith that is trusting. It's entrusting itself. The, the definition of faith is to entrust oneself wholly in something. You believe, you, you can tell that you've got a faith in a bank if that's where you have all your money at. And so he's talking about the, the idea that you are trusting yourself wholly in Christ Jesus. Uh, the picture here is their faith is resting in Christ when he says a faith in Christ Jesus. Their, their faith is referred to here because this is a particular challenge uh, that not just their faith in God, but their faith in Christ. Tell me this. What happens if you believe that everything's spiritual or, or if you're, you're tempted to start believing that everything that is good is of the spirit world and everything that is, that is physical is evil, what do you do with a God who took on flesh in order to die for us and his death to be uh, significant for us? Can you see here why the enemy is, is sneaking this particular teaching into the early church and it's not just in Colossae because in doing so he can undermine the, the doctrine that God took on flesh and became one of us. So it's their faith in the person, the physical person of Christ that Paul is grateful for here. Second idea is a sign of a sure foundation is their love for the saints. This is agape love, the unconditional love. You might remember that term, that unconditional love from when we looked at 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11. We looked at the fact that unconditional love is modeled after God's love who uh, even when we did not love him, he loved us. It's a love that takes initiative in the relationship. It's modeled after his love that in sending his own son to satisfy his own wrath. It's love that is self-sacrificing even uh, at the sacrifice of personal benefit necessarily. So he's praising them for their unconditional love for all the saints. I want you to notice this too, that this faith and this love, where does it come from? According to what Paul is saying, it's because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Their faith and their love. Why? Because of your hope laid up for you in heaven. The, the term here used for laid up in heaven, it's, it's literally laid away. Laid away. You guys remember when we used layaway at stores? What would you do? You take that item off the shelf, you take it to the layaway department, and you say, I want to lay this away for Christmas. And I'm going to come and I'm going to pay $10 toward it. Because I don't have that $100 now and I'm not dumb enough to use a credit card where I, when I don't have the money to pay for it. I, people that do that are not dumb. I apologize. I use some terms up here. And then Kelly says, you shouldn't have said they were dumb. <laughs> but, um, but anyways, getting back to that. So, so I'm going to pay $10 a week toward this, let's say, until I've paid this off. So you lay that away and you're thinking about, man, I've got that on layaway and I can't wait until I can go and get that. And that's the term what he's saying. He's saying the hope laid away for you in heaven. There's that thought of expectation here. And it's not that, notice here that he's saying the hope. It's not saying because you hope about heaven. 
saying because of the hope laid away there. And the idea there is you have laid away Christ, that he is the hope. And because you have, because you have the hope, which is Christ, laid up for you in heaven, you can have faith and love here on earth. This communicates two things. Our love and our faith are to be grounded and are to be energized by our treasuring Christ, who that full intimate relationship with him is waiting for us in heaven. And the second idea is that our treasuring Christ in heaven is to be evidenced by our faith and our love for each other here on earth. It's to have a direct impact on our life here on earth. You know, I spent all of yesterday with some guys that I'm really grateful for, and, and ladies too, of moving all of our, almost all of our earthly things from one location to another. You know, with all of that stuff, one day I look forward to that trumpet sound and when I am going to be, I hope that it's a moment that I'm going to be able to be, you know, moving up from the earth and I can look back on that house to go and to be with Christ when I'm raptured from that earth and I'm going to look back on that house and be like, you can have it. You know what? Take it. Uh, You know, anybody, go on in, doors open, there's a bathroom that's half remodeled. Have fun with it. You know, I might have all this stuff here. But guys, the point is to be treasuring the one that we're going to be able to be with one day. And what Paul is pointing out as signs of their sure foundation was that it was flowing out in their daily life of, of having a faith that was rock solid and a love for each other. And see how that hope that they had laid up for them in heaven was flowing out in their daily lives with each other. <clears throat> Paul himself here, notice, was modeling a love and a faith because of the hope that he had laid up for him. This letter was written from house arrest in Rome. He was not even able to go where he wanted to go anymore. But yet here he is spending his time concerned about these people that he had never met before because what was going on? Because that hope that they would have laid up was it had the possibility of being eroded by this teaching that was creeping in into their church. Paul is modeling here the fact that where is his hope? His hope is residing in Christ. He wasn't sitting there going, oh, what am I going to do? My faith is... You know, because I've, I've just realized that God's not all about my comfort because, you know, if, if, if God were doing what I would want him to do, this would be cleared up and I'd be out of here and I'd be, able to be out, have, my, have my, um, my, my freedom. Paul is modeling this faith and this love that's laid up for him in heaven. I want you to take a moment and think about what is your treasure? What is the foundation of your life? It's... The signs of what your foundation is is in what you treasure. You know, if you, if, 
I hate to say this, but you know, if, we were, if, if one of us were to drive home today and, and all of our earthly possessions were burned down to the ground, I mean, I'd, I'd break down and cry, okay? I mean, I'm not going to get hyper-spiritual here. But would, we, would, we, would it draw us to think about the fact that, you know what? I can't lose my greatest treasure yet. And I'm still looking forward to that greatest treasure that I have. Would your relationships be described as being full of love? And, I, and I'm going to tell you, once again, it's not about, okay, got to love more, got to love more, got to love more. This verse is showing us that in treasuring Christ as our hope, it's the cause of our being able to love other people. The answer is in treasuring Christ, holding him up as our hope for everything. Our hope is not in that this person will finally be nice to me or that we won't have any problems or something like that. The hope comes or, or the hope in Christ affects that relationship. Notice that when he says, um, of this you have heard before in the word of truth. Of what? Of this hope. So, so this hope in Christ is to be embodied in the gospel message. Of this, you have heard before. So he's springing into the rest of this, his verses here, the rest of his message in this letter, springing off of this hope. Paul is emphasizing here that their love and their faith was made possible by what? Hearing the gospel. Remember, he's trying to draw them back to the truth, the strong foundation that had been set up. He's trying to draw them back to this idea that, that this strong foundation is something to be rested in, is something to be enjoyed. So this leads us to our third idea of the substance of a sure foundation. What is the, according to Paul here, in these first eight verses, what is the substance of a sure foundation? You can hear Paul's concern for them in this new teaching that they were starting to grab a hold of when he describes that of this you heard before in the word of truth. He's referencing the idea that remember what you heard before from your brother Epaphras who came from us when we were serving in Ephesus. The very substance of the gospel is truth. The very substance of the gospel is the word of truth. Notice how he describes the gospel here. The word of truth, the gospel. He describes it as you understood the grace of God in truth. How often does Paul describe it in these ways? It's significant of why he is describing that in this way. And I'll just read these these, um, three verses. I don't know if you noticed this, but we read the Bible as much as we can especially when, pre- when it's being preached on here because that's where the message needs to come from. He goes into, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, starting verse six, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made to, known to us your love in the spirit. It's not fashionable today to talk about the truth of scripture and the gospel being that we needed a savior because of our sins and God himself 
took on human flesh to be the Savior and died for us and rose again in payment for our sins and that, it's, and that only in laying ourselves on that sacrifice, that death and resurrection of Christ, only in doing that may we have a relationship with God. The gospel, it is not fashionable to talk about it as being the only way to have a relationship with God. But it is the only way to have a relationship with God. The truth of God is the very substance of this sure foundation. Uh, We see this uh, Jesus speaking to Pilate in John 18. He says, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul is explaining that those who are perishing are perishing. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The Bible is claiming authoritative truth as being how a person is saved, how a person grows. When we give up on the truth of God in doctrine, we give up a sure foundation. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul describes the body of Christ as being this, the church of the living God, a pillar of the truth. That we are called to be a pillar of what? The truth. Can you see why God's enemy, once again, would target what? The truth. It, it, it started from the very moment it's, it's the next verses after God created the world. What happens? And the serpent was the most crafty of all of the animals. And he says, did God really say? The whole battle for the kingdom is a battle of truth and lies. And we must hold to the truth. We must know the truth. We must stand for the truth. We're called to be a pillar of the truth. I hope I don't embarrass Rick and Sherry Payne here, but um, I enjoyed learning about, maybe some of you have learned about this, the construction of their home. And, you know, it was a significant thing. As they were digging down for their basement, they hit solid rock. They hit bedrock. So they didn't even have to pour footings for their basement. That's a great thing until they realized they needed to go a couple inches deeper in part of the basement. <laughs> you know, when you got to get the pickaxe out and dig into solid rock, that's not so fun. But the significant thing there was we have found solid rock here. We can build our house from this point up. The solid rock of bedrock is one of the best things. It's the best thing that you could build your home on. And Paul is reminding the Colossians, and we're being reminded this morning, that it's the solid foundation of God's truth that must be protected in our lives and in our minds. And so when the questions come up of, if God is good, why is it that evil can exist? Engage these questions. But engage them knowing, I will not arrive at the answer from here. Because this is a in question of infinite importance and I must rely on an infinite God 
to give me the information that I need to answer this question. Not just of infinite importance, but it's of, it's of infinite issue that, that we just are not equipped up here to understand. So God is, Paul is saying that our relationship with God is based on the bedrock of church. Uh, I'm sorry, not of church, but of truth. A couple of observations about the real truth of the gospel. Notice that he describes it as bearing fruit and increasing. Um, it's, it's significant. This is, this, the idea here is that it's in continuous fruit bearing. It's significant to the fact that God's truth is meant to be growing and increasing and multiplying. We don't need another class about studying the Bible. We need to dig into the Bible. We don't need another study about evangelism. We need to be sharing our faith as we find opportunity to do it. Um, the, the God, look at uh, Epaphras. And I think Paul is referencing this, that the gospel is continuing to grow and multiply. See what it did for you in Colossae when Epaphras brought that truth back to you and planted that seed and the church in Colossae grew and increased and multiplied. Paul's calling them back to their foundation and their history. Um, Also, notice that the gospel is an issue. uh, Believing in the gospel is an issue of hearing and understanding. The idea here is it's both of, of cognitive, put, you know, agreement to it, but experiencing it as well. It's kind of like the difference between <clears throat> when someone lost, loses a loved one, it's the difference between being able to say, I know that it's hard, and being able to say, I understand how you feel. There's two different things there. Because if you haven't experienced it, you can't say, I understand. And there's a significance there when he says, since the day you heard it and understood it. That the gospel, God's truth, is meant to be accepted cognitively, but also to be experienced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And you may be sitting here this morning and you've heard it, and you, you've, you've believed, you know, how would I put this? You have hitched your horse up to it. It's the bandwagon that you've jumped on. But the Holy Spirit is not indwelling you to where you understand it. And that's significant. That's important. That's something to call out for. I'm not calling about a second work of the Holy Spirit or something like that. I'm saying that when someone is saved, when they have truly received Christ as their Savior, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us in a way that can never be taken away from us and we understand it. And that's what Paul is pointing to here. Um, Just as a foundation needs to have consistency in its substance, the gospel proves to be strong because of its consistency. And so the last idea here that flows out of this passage of the substance of a sure foundation is that it's, it's consistent. Its substance is the truth of God, but it's also, it has a consistency to it. And I draw this out of here because Paul is specifically pointing to the consistency of the truth of the gospel here. He says, Notice what he says, which is come to you as indeed in the whole world. 
as it also does among you. It's bearing fruit as it does among you. Notice how he's relating to them and he's saying, Colossian believers, see, the same gospel that came to you, it's going there and it's doing the same thing over in Ephesus. It's now doing the same thing over here in Romans, in Rome, um, even in the Praetorian Guard the gospel was starting to spread. I've shared with this before that I love going to a different country and meeting believers there and seeing that God is teaching them the same things that he's teaching me. That they're, that they're reading the scriptures and the Holy Spirit is working within their life and with them just as, it, as he has worked it within me. So there's a consistent strength with the gospel. The, the message of the gospel spans cultures Paul is pointing to. Then he points to the fact that the message of the gospel spans time. Notice he says, since the day you heard it and understood it, just as you learned it from Epaphras, he's pointing to them the fact that, look, it's the same truth. It hasn't changed. Don't just grab on to some new teaching. But see that this is a gospel. This is a message that spans time. I appreciated um, visiting with the Paines about their house and learning about a, a statement that Rick made. And he said, you know, I figure that if this house moves, we're all in trouble. <laughs> what did he mean by that? He meant because it's the same bedrock that, that the highway or that, the, the, that the, the train trussle is connected to. It's the same bedrock that... that um, someone else's house or a building downtown is connected to. If this house moves, all those other things are going to move too. And this is what Paul is reminding them of. This gospel has spread not just among you, but among all the, all, it's spreading in all of the known world. It's not just a gospel that you heard, now it's become something new. But it's since the day you heard of it, it's been doing these things. He's drawing back to them the importance of this unchanging, sure foundation. Just a couple ideas of application. Do you trust in the sure foundation of the gospel? Where there's news of, of a new truth or a different way to think about God, for one thing, there's nothing new under the sun. But does it shake your foundation? Do you teach your children God's truth? Not just as well, this is an important part of life. This is something you should pick up along the way. Or do you teach it as the foundation of all of life? You know what, guys? One day, all of this physical world's going to be gone. And we're going to be left with the truth of God's word. And our kids are going to, that, that's what they're going to be left with. Nothing else that they invested their life in is going to matter anymore. Did we prepare them for that? Did we prepare them for that mo one moment? Did we prepare ourselves for that moment? Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your true truth. Thank you, Lord, for the significance of this letter to these Colossian believers. Thank you, Lord, that we get to be um, flies on the wall of Paul's concern and how your Holy Spirit crafted this letter to go to them and for us to be able to benefit from it down the road some 2,000 years later.
Thank you, Lord God, that, that your mind is so much greater than ours. You are infinite. We are finite. We are stuck in the corridors of our minds. And we need to rely on you to teach us, to model for us, to make us new. Lord, I just pray that, that as the challenges to your truth arise, that we would lay ourselves on the sure foundation of your word. Lord, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.